Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus 35. Uh, But before we get going in our passage, just want to remind you, um, you might have seen a video that went out a couple days ago announcing that next Sunday, August 9th, uh, we're going to try something a little bit different with our church on the lawn. Uh, 10 a.m., the 10 a.m. service in the morning on the lawn will be a family worship service. It will be geared uh, towards families, especially those with younger kids of any age. We encourage you guys to sign up and come out. Um, I know that uh, the majority of our families um, with, with younger age children, elementary school children, have um, not been able to benefit from church on the lawn just the way that we're logistically set up. Uh, so we want to have a service that is geared towards you guys. And so that will be next Sunday at 10 a.m. And then next Sunday evening at 7 p.m., we will have our uh, church on the lawn service that we have been um, having in, in recent weeks with full sermon, um, music, prayer, communion, Uh, That will be at 7 p.m. So all that to say, tomorrow morning, the same registration email will go out, 8 a.m. And then there will be two options to choose from to register, either family worship service in the morning or the uh, regular worship service uh, in the evening. So we're going to try it, see what happens, take it one step at a time. That's been our our approach through this, uh, to quote uh, Dwight Dwight Eisenhower, uh, plans are useless but planning is everything. And that makes so much sense to us as a church staff in this pandemic, but uh, we'll continue to trust the Lord with it uh, one week at a time. But I have said this before, that there are certain phrases in our culture and our society that are kind of mainstay, right? The kind of phrases that everybody kind of knows and has heard, uh, they're household phrases, even though nobody might really know where they began or started from. And one of those phrases is, um, life is not about the destination, it's about the journey. Surely you've heard that phrase. In some sense, we all kind of hear it and nod our head in agreement. Um, But what I have found is that just in our increasingly divided time and age and cultural moment, uh, there are, uh, it's this kind of strange common ground that everybody loves the idea and quotes related to the journey of life. Christians, non-Christians, right? Religious, non-religious, the spiritual but not religious, the self-help gurus, the motivational speakers all talk about the importance of the journey. And I think one reason is because it is related to mankind's innate desire for purpose, for meaning, that we so badly want to believe we have a meaning in our life, that there's a purpose for what we're doing day after day. There's something bigger than ourselves. Well, this morning, we are going to finish our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And for those who are counting at home, this is sermon number 28 throughout this book. And we're going to cover chapters 35 to 40 all this morning, all in 30, 35 minutes. So if you ever doubted miracles could happen this morning, we'll be proof. But at the outset, listen to the way that this foundational, massively important book in your Bible ends. Listen to how it ends. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Exodus ends with God leading his people on a journey. It's true for Israel in the wilderness on their journey to Canaan. It's true for the church today in the figurative wilderness on our journey to glory. But when when we began this series way back, January 5th, I said that throughout this book, there's going to be three aspects of God's character that we will bear witness to over and over again. Um, God's power, God's promises, and God's presence. And those three same aspects we will dig into to conclude our series. In these final chapters of the book, we will, number one, recognize God's power, number two, cling to God's promises, and number three, walk in God's presence. So would you turn with me in Exodus 35? We're going to read verses 1 through 5 and then verse 10. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Down to verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Number one, recognize God's power. So, so whether you have been with us for the entire uh, series of Exodus, or, or maybe you just started coming uh, recently, digitally, or in person, um, or, or maybe this is your first time, and, and so I ask that just based on what you can recall from the book of Exodus, if I were to ask you the question, when you think about God's power in this book, what do you think of? I'll tell you what I am prone to think of first. I go all the way back to the front half of the book, right? To the miraculous acts of God, starting with the burning bush, this blazing fire in the desert that did not even consume the bush. That must have been a powerful image to see. Or how about the ten plagues? I mean, talk about God's power um, being displayed over Pharaoh. River of blood, locusts, storms, total darkness. Or come on now, how about the parting of the Red Sea? This is probably it. Pushing the waters back on each side while over a million men, women, and children crossed over on dry land just to see those same waters come back when Pharaoh and his army who are pursuing the nation of Israel tried to follow And it wipes them out, destroys them. That is power. And it's all true. Yet, I believe the most compelling display of God's power in Exodus was not changing currents of rivers, but rather changing human hearts of sinners. It's one thing to change 
a circumstance, in Israel's case, from an enslaved, enslaved nation to a free nation. But it's another thing, a far more powerful thing, to change someone's heart from being enslaved to other gods to worshiping the one true God. You know, the reason we're going to be able to cover six chapters this morning in the book of Exodus is because for, for the most part, especially chapters 36 through most of 40, is a repeat, nearly word for word. A repeat of chapters 25 to 29, when God first gave the instructions to Moses of how to build the tabernacle. Now we're going to read the actual construction of the tabernacle. Right? Chapters 25 to 29 were the plans. Chapters 36 to 40 is the execution. But while the words are very much the same, the one massive difference are the people's hearts. When Moses came down the mountain the first time, the people's hearts were hardened against God. They were resentful against God. Moses, and so they conspired together to build a golden calf, to betray God, to betray his glory, and pursue lesser gods. We walk through how Moses' anger was kindled, and the worst offenders, um, the, the ones who uh, seemed to lead the nation uh, astray, were punished. But God never abandoned his people. We read about how after the fact, God renewed his covenant and he brought healing to this nation, not through wrath, but through love. He didn't just condemn, he restored and he told them through his mediator, Moses, I'm not leaving. Despite all that you've done, I'm still here. That is the kind of power that can change human hearts. You know, if there's one movie that has, I have seen more in the past, I don't know, year, year and a half, a movie I've seen more than any other movie, it's the classic Disney film, Frozen. And not only do Caden and Bryn love watching it, have seen it many times, they have actually seen it so many times that they can actually act out the movie together. Like, not just a scene, like the movie. And so, one line that I have heard over and over and over again is near the beginning, and you know the story, you know you do, when Elsa accidentally strikes her sister Anna with a shot of ice, her parents rush in, bring them to the trolls, and the king troll says, quote, you're lucky she wasn't hit in the heart. The heart is not so easily changed. The most powerful thing in the world is a changed heart. And the only one who can change hearts is the one who created them. And the way God changes hearts is to give of himself. When, when, when he renewed the covenant with uh, Moses and Israel, he absorbed their sin. He, he, he forgave them. And, and forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. There's always a cost to the one doing the forgiving. And that price was paid by God himself. So when Moses congregates the nation of Israel, 
Look at the language. They were all throughout the verses we read and, and more. 35.1, Moses assembled all the congregation and then proceeds to repeat the importance of the Sabbath rest for everyone, even at the outset of them now beginning to build the tabernacle. Verse 4, Moses said to all the congregation, take a contribution, whoever is of a generous heart. Verse 10, let every craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. Further down to verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred them and everyone whose spirit moved them. Still more, verse 22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Verse 24, everyone who can make a contribution of silver and bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. Verse 25, and every skillful woman spun with her hands. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. I could keep going, but I think you get the point. This chapter is a powerful evidence of changed hearts. Man, just two chapters earlier, the nation was building a golden calf ready to move on from the Lord and live their lives without Him, figure it out as they go. And now, by God's love and grace, which has restored the covenant. They're changed. And they're here. They're not pressured or condemned into having to give. They were loved into it. You know what I mean? This is, this is an example of grace-fueled obedience that the whole nation is showing. This is revival. The primary evidence of a changed heart is radical generosity towards God's work in this world. True then, true now. That when God gives of Himself and God transforms hearts, it produces disciples who in turn give of themselves for the glory of God and the building of God's kingdom. And so when we talk about giving ourselves today, uh, there's really three ways. There's three ways we did it in Exodus. There's three ways we do it now. And they all start with the letter T, conveniently. Time, talent, and treasure. When God changes our hearts, the evidence of that change is radical generosity with time, with our talent, and with our treasure. Where the question across all three changes from, man, how much do I have to give? Changes to, how much can I give? How much can I give to this work of myself? And notice, Moses didn't mandate amounts at this point. He didn't say you got to give this percentage. And this many families have to bring this amount, and this many tribes have to provide this amount. He says clearly, whoever's heart stirs you, whoever's heart moves you to give, you give. And that amount is between you and the Lord. So, so, so we don't know if, if, if the whole nation gave, but we know that all whose hearts moved them gave, and it was in abundance. 
But the bottom line is that when God does the powerful work of capturing our hearts, the most important thing about us becomes Him, His will for our lives, His kingdom that He is building where He allows us to now play a part. For the believer, for the one who's been changed, it is a gift to us that we can give of ourselves to His work. And I'm just saying, if, it, if in the church today, as we journey to glory, if all we're doing is just, and, and all we see church as, like we'll just kind of meet once in a while, and we'll sing some songs, and we'll say hi, and just pass some pleasantries with one another, and then we'll go back to our real lives to our real relationships, to things we're really passionate about, the things we're really building. If that's the way we're viewing this, man, we're missing the boat. But rather, if we are coming together, we are pooling our resources, our time, our talents, our treasure, as the Lord moves us, then the Lord will move through us to make disciples across this world, to build His kingdom. Man, what better calling is there? And the diversity of the work requires a diversity of gifts. To build a tabernacle, the Israelites needed all different kinds of treasure and talents to make it happen. Where, where people would give in relation to how much they are given, right? To whom much is given, much is expected. And we see clearly that both men and women needed to be involved. If women were not a part of it, it would not have worked because women are just as essential and distinct in their contribution to building God's kingdom than the men. Beyond that, craftsmen were needed, project managers were needed, treasurers were needed, a diversity of gifts for a unified mission where no one is overlooked, Every role is essential. Every person had a part to play. And it's that same way in the church. In the church today, when it's functioning the way it should be, everyone has a part. No one is non-essential. No one's generosity is overlooked. And yet, all in all, every contribution we have, the time we give, the talents we share, the treasure we give, can be used to either build the golden calf or build the tabernacle. And the question is, what will it be? And the question is, what's the difference between using your gifts for a golden calf or for a tabernacle? The difference is a changed heart, a heart that is living for His glory and not our own. Number one, in Exodus, as we conclude this book, recognize God's power to change hearts. Number two, cling to God's promises. So beginning in chapter 36, verse 1, through uh, chapter 40, verse 33, again, Moses writes about the construction and actual building of the tabernacle and all the components within it. The Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the altars, the curtains, and so on. And a fulfillment of the instructions that were given by God is now playing out in these chapters. 
But I want to read just the bookends of it since we did already walk through the different elements. But I just want to read the bookends. So chapter 36, verse 1, and then we're going to read chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, and then 32 and 33. So I'll walk us through it. 36.1, Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Flip now to chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now jump down to verses 32 and 33. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, and the, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Significance of the book of Exodus ending in this way, with a tent raised up, is not ultimately about a tent with all its detailed instruction. It's about a God who did what he said he would do. You see, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And in Yahweh, the great I Am, we have the perfect promise maker. And the tent is a sign and symbol of God's unbreakable promise to rescue his people and dwell with them. Where do we see, first see this promise? We, we saw it way back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. God had Moses say this to the nation of Israel. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God promised he would dwell with his people on the way to this land and in this land. And that comes to fruition at the end of this book when the tabernacle is finally raised up. Man, church, how good is it? Think about this. How good is it that we serve a God who makes himself known and who always keeps his word? But the amazing thing about this holy tent is not just that it fulfills God's promises of old. It's also a symbol of God's promises that still lie ahead. Back to Exodus 40, verses now 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this is a kind of a, a, a climatic moment, right? The glory cloud has descended, and it fills this tent. And it's the first time that the nation of Israel witnesses the glory of God up close. Up to this point, God's glory was dwell at the top of a mountain that they saw from afar. But they were prohibited from going to see. But now, in the center of the camp, in the tabernacle, they experience it up close. The cloud is um, what we call a theophany. 
It's, it's a visible manifestation of an invisible God. And there's different theophanies throughout the Old Testament before Christ came. Because God's glory, we know, is not visible. As we said last week, God's glory is the totality of all that He is, all of His attributes. But, but in a sense, a cloud, while a limited uh, picture of God's glory, it, it, it's somewhat of an accurate one. Because a cloud is dynamic. It's constantly moving into every space. It's, it's this ongoing filling and spreading just as God's glory fills and expands over all of His creation. And yet, as we just read, now that the glory has filled the tabernacle, now, did you notice, even Moses can't enter. Doesn't that sound kind of odd? So now we have this great tabernacle, God's glory is there, but now we can't enter it? How can that be? And therein lies the beautiful picture of God Himself. He is transcendent, yet He is near. He is holy and perfect, yet He chooses to reveal Himself and make a way for His people to seek atonement and be in covenant relationship with Him. How do those come together? How is that possible? How can you be both? The answer is a blood sacrifice. You know, this book of Exodus ends. If you have your Bible in front of you, you turn the page. What's next? The book of Leviticus. And how does Leviticus begin? It begins with a long list of instructions given by Moses regarding the sacrifices necessary within the tabernacle. The ones to be carried out by Aaron and the priests. Okay, so let's do the work of connecting the dots here. The tabernacle is, in a sense, the promise fulfilled, but partially. More than that, it extends the promise into the future when God will do away with the tent altogether. And rather than me just kind of tell you and connect those dots, let's see how the author of Hebrews does it. Right? Hebrews is really structured as kind of three sermons as an author written to churches that are uh, in danger of abandoning the Christian faith and going back to Jewish custom. And so he writes this letter to the church, a church like us, who live in the already not yet, where Christ has already died and rose again, but has not yet returned. Listen to Hebrews 9. You've heard Hebrews 9 before, but listen to it now on the heels of Exodus 1-7. through seven. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Jump down, verse 11 through 13. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jump down, end of the chapter, verses 27 and 28. And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Every promise made by God, the perfect promise maker, is fulfilled in the Son, Jesus Christ. Your sin is not covered by your good deeds. It's not covered by the testimony of another on your behalf. It is covered completely, but only by the blood of Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross and reconciles you back to God through faith. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we've, we've talked about this before, but remember that word dwelt in John 1. What's the, what's the word translated? Tabernacle. The God of all wonders, of all power, came near and tabernacled amongst us in Christ. So in these uncertain days, church, more than ever, cling to God's promises, which is to say, cling to Christ. Hear me. He will never fail you because he never has. Well, where does this leave us? Now as we end this sermon, we end this chapter, we end this entire series. If we recognize God's power, which was done in the past, we cling to God's promises, which will be finally fulfilled in the future, that leaves us with number three, the call to walk in God's presence right now. Let's read the final verses of Exodus together again. Verses 36 to 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. The famous quote we all know says, Life is not about the destination. It's about the journey. But God says it's about both. And He will be with us on the journey, on the way to the destination that He has marked out for us. He doesn't guarantee it's going to be a smooth journey. If anything, He's honest in telling you it won't be as we navigate a fallen world. 
but he does guarantee that he will be with us each and every step of the way. From here on out, Israel, it's going to be a rocky roundabout road to the promised land. It's not going to be smooth sailing from here on out, but God will never forsake his covenant to his people. And in the same way for us in the church today, for those who repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, God's presence will outshine all circumstance. And so we can move forward on the journey one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time, because God not only goes before us, but he is with us. As Martin Luther King said, if you can't fly, then run. And if you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. But by all means, keep moving. Grace Church, we began this series on January 5th, completely unaware of what lie ahead for us in the year 2020. And in that first sermon, I ended with these words about God's presence. The way we know we are experiencing the presence of God in our worship of Him is in our worship of Him to the praise of His glorious grace. To know Jesus is to worship Him, and to worship Him is to follow Him, and to follow Him is to be in His presence so that nothing in our lives is done apart from Him. Church, that is as true today on August 2nd as it was on January 5th. Even though the world has changed in between, our God remains the same. So, so what about between now and, and next January 5th? What's going to happen between now and then? What's the world going to look like? I don't know. But what I do know is that God will be there. In fact, He already is. And so by His grace, we will keep moving on the journey. And He will sustain us and bring us to the promised land just as He brought Israel to Canaan. Because on the rock of Christ, He has built His church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for putting us in this book of your word at this time in history. And I pray that those at Grace Church might look back. We might look back on 2020 with all the pain and difficulty and shock of what has happened. But right alongside that, we might be grateful for the fact that as a church, you brought us through chapter by chapter through this book of Exodus, where we were able to stare at and be edified by your power, your promises, and your presence. Father, let us be forever changed by it. Let us be a bright witness for it. And let your name get all the glory. It's your name we pray. Amen.